NZR Sports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sew her a new one. What a sentence, and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Hey gang, so I got a new book out. It's called The Upside of Fear, and it's exactly what you think it's about. It's about the good side of, well getting scared. In it, we talk not only about the science and biology behind fear, but the psychology as well. And it's not just coming from me, it's coming from some of the best in the sport. Omar Alhijalan, Jeff Provenzano, Maxine Tate, and so many more have contributed their sometimes terrifying stories to the book to help you overcome your fear. So head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com. You're going to find the link to the book there as well as the other books. It's available in ebook, paperback, hardback, and audiobook right now. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go. Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fringe podcast and a catch up with an awesome previous guest. So straight into it. Who the fuck are you and what do you do? I'm Mike McGowan and I do skydiving photography. 
Man, that is the understatement of a lifetime. You do the skydiving photography. I mean, it's it's you and a handful of trailblazers that kind of made modern uh, aerial photography what it is today. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I started early. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And really paved the way for a lot of people's careers, myself included. Oh, good. So good to hear that. Yeah, man. So to recap, let's let's for anybody that hasn't heard the first episode that you and I did, let's kind of get a recap of your career, how you got started in skydiving, how it worked into uh, camera flying, and what led you to where you are. Okay, well, I I can't remember not wanting to skydive. That's all there is to it. So when I went in the Navy at seventeen in boot camp, you take tests to see which classes and schools you are. are okay for and one of them was parachute rigging and in the uh definition it said you had to jump with a parachute that you passed and i right away signed up for for parachute riggers. so i made my first jump at lakehurst new jersey in 1964 out of a c-47 freefall wow yeah that's how they did it then and uh no modification on the canopy no bag or sleeve it was just Bang, it was open. <laughs> now, you said when you uh, you initially were signing up, um, they found your aptitude was parachute rigging. What what part of it aimed them towards parachute rigging for you? Were you a really meticulous person? Well, it wasn't just parachute rigging that it was offered to me. There was quite a few other schools that was offered to me. But I picked parachute riggers because I wanted to make that jump. So now you went um, in and and uh, obviously you did the jump and and got into skydiving. There, you're talking about a time frame when uh, Vietnam War was kicking off. So did you did you go overseas or were you all in the states? No, I went to Vietnam. I was a rescue air crewman in helicopters. They call them swimmers now. Okay, I spent a year over there. Man, oh man. I mean, obviously that paints a lot of images, but just the idea of being in a helicopter in Vietnam is is kind of hair-raising. Yeah, it kept me on my feet. But I was <laughs> young and I loved it. I mean, I loved my job was saving life. As a rigger, my job was saving lives. As a rescue air crewman, my job was saving lives. And I've always had an affinity to that. Sure. And so I loved it. And I was an 18-year-old kid, maybe 19 by then. And I was doing what I love to do. I was flying. I was saving lives. Sure. It was now, great. So you you went and you did the rigging. You made the, the, the jump and all that. Then you get assigned to the air crew stuff for a year in Vietnam. But how did you end up um, getting back into or did you get into full-time jumping with the Navy or did that come after you got out? I was I didn't full-time jump in the Navy. Okay. I jumped every weekend. And uh, I was in Imperial Beach, California, which is near Lakeside, California. Mm. It's not open anymore, but that's where I did my jumping during the weekend. And uh, sometimes I'd run over to Elsinore and we'd jump over there. Nice. Now, when did you know that um, skydiving was something you wanted to pursue for more than just a weekend entertainment kind of thing? Oh, when I did my first jump at Lakers. Really? Yeah, the die had been cast. It had been cast. There was just a few... uh, roadblocks in my way but that's where i was headed so i mean we're talking about a time in skydiving when obviously 
It's more expensive these days to get into skydiving, but I think it's a lot easier just because they've kind of ironed out all the kinks. But you started when they were still kind of figuring out what sport skydiving was. Oh, we were making it up as we went along. We had chest-mounted reserves and uh, with 24-foot twill reserves and uh, surplus backpacks modified for sport jumping with what they called either a TU or a double L modification, which gave you a whole four miles an hour forward speed. <laughs> and uh, there was no cutaways then because the Cape Wells weren't uh, capable of doing that, you know. And so we had to pull the reserve with the right hand, get our hands underneath the reserve and throw it down and into the spin with some lines in our hands and open up the reserve canopy. I mean, obviously, as a as a more modern jumper, that just kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. <laughs> well, it does now, but when we when I started, that was the best there was. Sure, you know, and I'm sure jumpers from 20 years from now are going to look back at the things we were doing, and they're going to say, "Oh my God!" Oh, without a doubt. Sure. You know, it's evolution. Sure. Now, uh, speaking of evolution, I mean, you have seen literally from the beginning of free fall photography all the way until now you've been a part of it since day one whether it was just watching its birth or becoming a part of it what was that like exciting absolutely because nobody had done it before us so again i'll tell you that we were making it up as we went along and uh so there was no rules sure and in photography, that's really how it's supposed to be. So you can create. If there's rules and things that are binding you, your photography suffocates. Sure. So in that sense, it was great. In the other sense that I had to wear a 24-pound helmet, uh, <laughs> heavier than my wrist. But I went in a Hasselblad, a Leica, and a, a video camera, and then a chest recorder because they didn't have handicams then. I mean, it's it's kind of funny now, of course, because it's, you know, a, a GoPro generation. And and I bitch because I started out with those brutally heavy high eights. But that's a joke compared to what you started out with. Yeah, that was really heavy. But I was getting what I needed to get to get published in the magazines. In fact, when I was working at Macrofish Parachute Service in Dallas, Texas, where I pretty much started free fall photography. I was taking a lot of pictures and I was sending them into parachutists. And uh, because it was local, everybody in, in my drop zone told me how great my photographs were. So naturally, I thought they were too. And so I called Larry Jaffe, who was the editor of Parachutes at the time. I says, Larry, I've been sending you a lot of good pictures, I think, and you haven't used any of them. He says, Mike, honestly, they aren't that good. You really need... And that was the best thing. I appreciate that to this day. Larry is one of my heroes. He says, you need a uh, large format camera to compete with Norm and Tommy because the in images are so much greater there. And uh, you need a little more work. And so I went and got me a large format camera, a Pentax 645, and I have Leica already, and uh, the video camera. And two months later, I, I shot a centerfold for a parachute. Uh -huh. I mean, which is amazing, but how, especially looking back on it now, because you were starting just slightly after those two that you just named, but I mean, 
you're chasing after Norman Kent and Tom Sanders. I mean, incredible trailblazers. And next thing you know, you're vying for position in the magazine right along with them. You had to know how cool that was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I started getting published a lot, I knew I was in heaven. And I had an edge on Tom and Norm because they did a lot of Hollywood stuff. And they mm. didn't do a lot of the boogies and the things where things were happening inside skydiving. So I was probably getting more covers and centerfolds than them because the Hollywood stuff didn't produce the kind of pictures Parachutes was looking for. Sure. Well, now this is maybe I have my time frames wrong, but is this around the time frame of like films like Fandango and such? Yeah, it was uh, actually it was around the time. Yeah, Fandango would have been one of them. It was I started before Fandango doing free fall photography. Hmm. I started in eighty one. Okay. Well, I I mean, I remember the very first movie I ever saw with any free fall or any skydiving at all was a classic called Gypsy Moths, which, of course, you'd know. Oh, yeah. Which was, um, and I'll never forget it. It's ingrained in my head, and it's just the one jump that I remember, not the one where the guy goes in, but the one where they jump and cut away like eight times. Uh, on one guy, just cutaway after cutaway after cutaway was ridiculous. That turned out to be Garth Taggart doing that. He later, and years later, we came, became friends. And there's a story about that I'll tell you later. Yes, yes, absolutely. And please, actually, go ahead. I'd love to hear the story. Well, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. Okay. And... uh I've been sober about five years. We were at the, our Couch Freaks Boogie in Iowa. And I was sitting next to Garth Tager that morning. And the Couch Freaks is a party where you skydive once in a while. <laughs> so we were on the first boat. And I'm sitting next to Garth. And I am nervous because he is one of my heroes. I mean, that's all there is to it. And we're sitting there looking around. And everybody's sick and kind of feeling terrible. And, and uh, Garth looks at me and says, uh, how come you're not hungover? I says, oh, I don't drink. I quit drinking some time ago. He says, me too. <laughs> and we became immediate friends. And uh, we stayed friends until his passing. I mean, it's kind of, um, I'm glad you brought it up. It's kind of a subculture within a culture, right? It's, it's uh, um, skydivers are known for their amazing ability to jump all day and party all night. And if you're a skydiver that jumps all day and doesn't party all night, you're kind of a member of a very elite club within the sport, right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, that really helped my photography because I've never performed as well with a hangover as I did with a clear head. Sure, sure. It, it gave me an edge. It really did. Now, we had talked um, after we uh, did the first show, uh, we had talked again, and and you had said one of the things that you had wanted to touch upon that we didn't get around to on that last time was the fact that you had overcome alcohol and uh, drug addiction to move forward, and that that was one of the things that you wished you had passed on. So I really do want to touch on that and and your experience both before and after and and ever since. Okay, I'd be glad to share that. I was raised by alcoholics, you know, and they hung around with alcoholics. I was an alcoholic at birth, I think. Hmm. But so as I was growing up, I didn't know my behavior was abnormal. 
because it was in tune with my parents and all my parents' friends. So I grew up drinking alcoholically and uh, drugging alcoholic or addictively for some time without even knowing I had a problem. And alcoholism is a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. So the, everybody knew I was an alcoholic, but they couldn't tell me because I wouldn't listen. Mm. And I had to come to terms with it. And so I was in Dallas, Texas, and I was what they call a functioning alcoholic. I was able to work and do my job, but at night or and that I would drink terribly alcoholically. The mm. next day I'd but I was doing free fall photography there. And the good Lord must have looked down at me and said, We gotta give this kid something. So he gave me a knack for photography, and my photography took off. Mm. So there was a guy named Ted Harem who approached me one time, and he said, I made too much money last year. I said, wow, we should all have that problem. He said, seriously. He says, I need a tax writer off, and the land is having an Easter bunny. And if I send you there to take pictures and sell your pictures there, which we did back then, uh, I'll split the money made with the pictures, but I'll cover all expenses. I mean, that was a dream come true for me because I was a parachute rigger at Macklefish Parachute Service and I wasn't making that much money. Mm. And I got that student rig so I could buy film for my cameras when I jumped. <laughs> uh, so one night he's over at my house and we're getting the final things down for this trip that I'm going to make. And uh, I says, Ted, you want a drink? He says, no, I don't want one. I said, okay. He says, yeah, I don't want one for the same reason you shouldn't want one. Oh, and I thought, uh-oh. Because when you're an alcoholic, you know you're doing something wrong. You think you're a bad person trying to get good. When mm -hmm. in fact, you're a sick person trying to get better. And that really made me nervous that he was going to back out. So I don't know how I knew this, but a block and a half from my house was in AA meeting. I used to jog around Bachman Lake, and it was right on the corner there. And how I knew that was an AA meeting was divine intervention for sure. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go to a meeting and tell Ted about it, and he won't lose uh, faith in me. Mm. I went to this meeting, and uh, they asked me who anybody there for the first meeting, and I very reluctantly raised my hand. I didn't even want to participate. <clears throat> and so they made the first meeting around somebody trying to quit for the first time, you know, and uh, it kind of revolved the meeting around me. And I met people there who I admired, who I respected, and uh, some really hot girls, too, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, I thought, if they can be alcoholic, maybe I really am an alcoholic. Then it became my turn to speak. And in meetings, you can't lie. You just can't. It's just something about it. So I said I was an alcoholic, and uh, at that moment, a transition happened. I knew in every fiber of my body, every fiber of my spirit, my brain, everything, that I was an alcoholic. And as they told me, the only thing I had to do was not take up the first drink, and I was a success. So that was the beginning of my sobriety. 
Well, I mean, you you go into a sport again that that for better or worse is known for people that definitely are hard chargers, whether it comes to skydiving or drinking or whatever. And I'd imagine that especially because you had difficulty recognizing that in yourself because of the way that you were raised, becoming a skydiver didn't make it any easier to recognize because I mean, it's very well accepted. Like I know a number of high functioning alcoholics in the sport that might have an idea something's wrong, but they're not forced to face it. Yeah. Like I said, it's a disease that tells you you don't have a disease. You live in denial. Don't even know you're lying. And uh, so, but it was even the partying is pretty hardy right now, but it's nothing compared to what it used to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, did it make it did it make it difficult as you made that transition to uh, being in the skydiving industry, but working on your sobriety at the beginning? Because I know, um, again, because it's that environment, it can be incredibly difficult um, even to know that you have a problem, let alone to pull away from it when everybody's trying to get you to come to the party. No, I'm headstrong and I wasn't ashamed of my alcoholism because I wasn't drinking. What's to be ashamed of, right? So when my friends would say, hey, let's go have a beer, I'd say, no, I don't drink. I'm an alcoholic. And skydivers are party-hardy guys, people, but they're also wonderful, wonderful family. Mm. And I never they always respected that and never pushed me for a drink. In fact, some of them were said, do you, do you mind if we drink? And I said, don't bother me at all. Because I had seen the light. I had set my path to sobriety, and there was nothing going to change it. So uh, it wasn't as hard as you might think. Well, it sounds to me, too, like uh, you described yourself as being a pretty headstrong person. So I'd imagine that when you went into that meeting and they said, you not drinking makes you successful, that must have planted a bit of a, a seed that if you do take that drink, you're not successful in this, and you don't strike me as the type that doesn't like to succeed. No, I love to succeed and, and think about it. If a bull rider has a terrible case of hemorrhoids, he's not going to get on that bull. <laughs> it's a simple decision, right? And it's the same for me. I know that if I take a drink, my life is ruined. Mm. Absolutely ruined. So I have a simple choice to not drink and have a, a hope in my life or to drink and ruin my life. You know? Sure. My sponsor taught me, he says, Mike, the only thing you can't do in this world is drink. And before, the only thing you could do was drink. So now the world is completely open up to you, and there's no limits. Sure. And that's your now, I mean, obviously, um, alcoholism ties into just addictive personalities. And you said you dealt with uh, chemical addiction as well? Heroin. No heroin oh my goodness so it was it was a big time yeah 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 if it's worth doing it's worth overdoing <laughs> I mean, how did how did that come about and which one was more difficult to walk away from or was it the same to you it was the crowd i hung out with when i got out of the navy uh i worked at a steel mill and there was a lot of heroin addicts there and uh so i got into that crowd and uh everyone's terribly addictive i mean there's no denying that first high is beautiful 
Sure. You find yourself chasing that high. Matter of fact, it was you get so thick that you know if you're hooked on heroin, if you don't get any, you get really sick. And so I would let myself get sick. So when I did do some heroin, I get the relief of the sickness going away, and it was like a high. Mm. I mean, we're we're sick people. We're just not uh, acting it out anymore. Sure. But as far as quitting, I quit heroin on my own. I quit heroin on my own, and uh, I couldn't quit heroin or alcohol on my own because alcohol is is a disease. Mm. The AMA admitted it now and uh it's it gets you spiritually physically and mentally and without some kind of help and i use the higher power to help me without some kind of help it's too much for one person to to deal with you can't sure well it's uh, with with the heroin stuff obviously the the kind of the modern version of that and, and one that i think a fair amount of skydivers have had to face down We've all dealt with injuries so much, and especially in the States in a culture where they hand out narcotic painkillers like it's a Pez dispenser, I personally um, know exactly what that would have been like going through because I've eaten more, you know, painkillers than I can, that any of my non-skydiving friends have and know how difficult it is when that last prescription gets filled to go, okay, Everybody just give me about a week because I'm going to be a real prick for the next week because they took the last of my pills away. So I think a lot of skydivers, without knowing that they have an understanding of that, actually do kind of get what getting through that is like. Yeah, that's true. And and I'm with the same story as you. I broke my back and they had me on painkillers. But my experience with heroin, I actually... They were going to keep me on painkillers because it was a permanent injury and a, and a permanent pain. But I saw what was starting to do to me, and I weaned myself off myself. You know, and, and it's not that hard to do. You just take half a dose for a while, then you take a quarter a dose, and then you're when you take no dose, there's no uh, sure. Uh, I was I was lucky in that I never had a terribly addictive personality. And by that, uh, I have I've said it before. Um, I'll take every pill that's in the house and everyone that's prescribed to me. But when they run out, I don't go looking for them. And that's really the only difference between, you know, me and a proper addict is that the proper addict will keep looking for them once they're gone. And as soon as my prescription ran out, all right, all right, well, that was fun. And I stopped, but you can still very easily see how that can absolutely get out of hand very quickly. It's a living hell, if you want to know the truth. Yeah. Because it's a a merry-go-round you get on and you can't get off. Sure. And you hate yourself for for doing it because you think you're weak instead of sick. But, you know, we have sick minds and we just need to get them healthy again sure and so it's a living hell and the next morning after you've been on a bender you go and you have to go say your star to all the people you offended mm. because i have never acted smart on drugs or booze i'm you know i, I just haven't matter sure. of fact i don't know anybody who's been smarter when they drank too much yeah they only think they are yeah exactly and they think they're joking <laughs> Of course. Now, 
as uh, someone that's been recovering for quite some time, but still obviously front and center in an industry where many, many people do have to deal with that issue, uh, do you find yourself or have you found yourself reaching out to people that you think have a problem? Or is that something that you kind of want someone to face on their own? Do you you feel like you you should reach out or or do you feel like you're overstretching if you're suggesting help? Reaching out isn't a good idea. The person needs to come to you. Alcoholics are like this. They could be headed south, going to a place they wanted to go to and the means of transportation they wanted to take, and somebody could come up to you and say, hey, Mike, keep going south. And without any reasoning that I can come up with, North starts looking better to me. <laughs> you know, and that's the, the personality of an alcoholic. If you tell me I'm an alcoholic, I reject that like crazy. So, and that's why I'm talking about it here, because I'm hoping other people will hear it and reach out to me if they need help. And I am glad to help them. Hmm. If I take the help and it's two o'clock in the morning and they think they're going to take a drink i don't mind them calling me at all as long as they call me before they took the drink sure you know i did a uh a thing with randy forbes and we talked a little bit about my alcoholism and i had numerous people come to me for help and there's no greater honor than to help another alcoholic well, and it's just it's also got to be nice to know that that uh, people um have recognized that they need that help and and see you as the potential off ramp to a you know a bad road that they're heading down. I had a um a good friend of mine, a really close friend, made almost a sideways comment uh, one time that she thought uh, maybe she was an alcoholic, and she had said that to a few people, and she said that um because my response to her was well. You might be. If you think you're an alcoholic, you might be. And she thanked me for my response because she said everybody else that she said that to was, no, you're not an alcoholic. You just you go a little big now and then and this and that. And and my response was, well, then you might want to fucking check yourself. And she really did thank me for being the one that was just like, okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, that's important. The people who say, oh, you're okay and everything, we call them an able. Wives or husbands can be terrible enablers. Your friends can be terrible enablers because they think admitting you're an alcoholic is admitting you have a weakness, and you're not. Mm. And they want you to be, see yourself as having a weakness, you know. And also, they don't want to lose you to party with. For sure. Uh, they just and they have a a, a misconstrued idea of what alcoholism is sure you know it's just a disease and i said this before but it's so important you're not a bad person trying to become good you're a sick person trying to get healthy Mm. and there's nothing to be ashamed of sure now so say there's somebody listening to the podcast now and they think they might have a, a problem with alcohol or drugs and they're not ready to approach anybody, but they on their own want to start seeing if they can correct this behavior. What kind of tips do you have for them, especially in the skydiving environment on how to kind of avoid the pitfalls that lead to the stuff they want to try and get out of? Well, the first thing you got to do is you got to talk to somebody with honesty. 
you know, and that's very hard for a person who's practicing his alcoholism. My sponsor once told me, he says, I know when you're lying, Michael. And I said, oh, yeah, how's that? And he says, your lips are moving. <laughs> that's after I, I was offended then, but after I got sober for a while, I realized he was telling me the truth. Alcoholics will lie even when they don't have to. And they mostly, the most, the worst lie they do is the one they tell themselves. So they, in between their ears, all by themselves, is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And they need to get with somebody who will support them and hopefully have some experience with alcoholism that can help them. I mean, I have a huge presence on Facebook, and anybody who wants to instant message me and, and talk about it, I am glad to help. Sure. Because helping other people stay sober is what keeps me sober. That's how it works. Which is fantastic. Now, what do you say to someone that um, is fighting that particular demon and they're worried that because we're in a sport where as a working skydiver, chances are you have other people's lives in your hands. Um, what are the concerns about admitting to anyone or going for help to someone on that and feeling like they're risking their career or risking their standing in the sport? Because that's a potential huge risk. You go to a fellow alcoholic one who's a meeting-going alcoholic, we, they call it anonymous for a reason. <laughs> and we keep that that topic between ourselves. It goes no further than that. Hmm. No further than that at all. And that's been a, 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 a go-to in, in uh, getting sober for, since I can remember. You know, I, so you know if you're talking to a fellow alcoholic that it stays there. Mm. And even if I I won't go to the instructor or the lead instructor or something like that and say, hey, we got a problem here. I can't do that. Mm. I'll get drunk myself if I break that rule. You know, it just works that way. So I would say find somebody who's got experience with a program and is sober, has a good, solid sobriety, and talk it over with them. Here is one thing that is very, very, very important. We don't judge. Mm. Don't judge. We empathize with people, and they're not going to tell us anything they've done that we haven't done ourselves. Sure. It's because I was a sick alcoholic. You know? <laughs> now, but with now how many years have you been sober 40 so for quite some time so you learned a long time ago how to navigate the um sidestepping of drinking and and people obviously now know you as someone that doesn't drink but do you have any tips for somebody that say is is recovering maybe they're recently recovered but are finding it difficult to enjoy the social side of skydiving because they are afraid of either outing themselves or, um, or kind of feeling odd being, you know, the person not drinking at the party. How, how do you handle it? And how do you recommend people handle it? Well, there's a couple things. One, there's an organization called skydivers supporting sobriety. It's on Facebook and there's over a thousand members there. So there's a lot of support there. You know, another thing is, if you're an alcoholic who's not drinking, don't be afraid to say it. Say, I don't drink because I have a problem with it. Mm. And if anyone finds fault with that, 
kiss my aunt. <laughs> you know, because you're not worth my my thoughts or my concern. As I said, when I first sobered up and I told people I didn't drink because I was an alcoholic, nobody said to me, oh, come on, Michael, you can sure. have a drink. Because they respected that. And be honest with you, most people know you're an alcoholic before you do. So you're not springing any good news, new news to them. <laughs> For sure. You know, it's kind of funny. I didn't start drinking at all until I was 36 years old. So for many, many years, the party scene would come around or I'd be out with friends, whether they be jumpers or not, in the bars. And I'm drinking 7-Up. And people would, you know, what do you want to drink? I'd say a 7-Up. I don't drink. And they would always naturally assume, oh, did you have a problem with it? And my response was, no, I just didn't drink. But as as someone that hasn't suffered with alcoholism, it's kind of funny that I can absolutely associate what it's like to have them go, oh, do you, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's totally true. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, I think that shows a, a level of respect that most people have. And I think uh, nowadays, especially much more than when you were starting to really deal with it, um, dealing with alcoholism and drug abuse is um, a lot more out in the open. And I think people are a lot freer to talk about it now than they ever have been. Oh, people understand alcoholism so much better now. I mean... People support me to stay sober, you know. They don't look down on me. I have found that people actually respect me for recognizing I had that problem and dealing with it. Mm. So, skydivers are a lot of things, but they're no-nonsense people. Mm. You know, if you do something that endangers them in free fall, they will not hesitate to tell you. <laughs> There's no kidding about that. So, so now outside of all of this, um, obviously you've had just a, a storied career all these years. You're still in Arizona. You're still on the drop zone. You're still incredibly active in the sport. And I'll scroll through Facebook, and I know halfway through one of your images coming onto my feed that it's your shot and uh, all the different things you're doing. You must be having a blast out there, um, just shooting the hell out of everything going on on the drop zone. Oh, it's great for me because there's so many events happen here in Skydive, Arizona, because it's such a popular drop zone. I mean, just this month alone, there was SIS, there was Rookie Roundup, there was Introduction to 40 Ways, and then there was a 40-way camp, you know. And I filmed, covered all that, and I try to get those kind of pictures in the magazine to support the drop zone. Well, and I so, love, like I said, I, I noticed uh, – um, I, th I think uh, I, I couldn't say how long ago it was, but I know that you had uh, we talked pre-podcast that you had gotten a new lens. Uh, and I had mentioned that I knew right away, oh, my goodness, these are amazing. He's got depth of field is just incredible. And some of these long lens landing shots that you've been getting with really amazing composition in them. And it's very fun to see. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I did get a new lens, you know, Uh you can have the best sensor in the world in your camera, but if it can't see the image, it can't record it. Yep. So one is very important. And sure. the one I have 300 millimeter and it's an F2.8. So what it does, it blows out the background. 
get your, your subject matter tack sharp so your eye immediately goes to your subject matter, which where you want it to go. Sure. Now, um, actually stepping back uh, uh, quite a few years now, I think we talked about this last time. You were pretty much single-handedly responsible for basically writing the script for a tandem video and how it goes. And I'll never forget the first time that I visited Skydive Arizona, I had seen one of your videos playing and I'd been shooting video by that time for a few years. And it was exactly your script that had just been handed all around the country because it was such a perfect way to encapsulate the tandem experience. How did you formulate all that? Was that just trial and error? Or you kind of knew how that's how it should go. I learned a lot by going to the movies. I really did by watching how they did things. These are the masters. And when tandems first came out, people were just shooting the free fall and handing them them the free fall footage. I thought, wouldn't this be so much more appealing if we did a documentary, did an mm-hmm. interview, and had a, a shot list, just like they do in the movies. And so I did that, and it was enormously successful. They People flew me all over the country to teach them how to do this. Sure. It, it really worked out well, and it became a great advertisement for tandem because a person goes home, and they show this video to people, and Many of them will say, God, I want to try that. You know, sure. So it's a great advertisement for the drop zone. Well, and it, it must be kind of cool all these years later to pull up a tandem video from Thailand or Dubai or somewhere in the States or anywhere in the world, and it's fucking your script. Pretty much. Pretty much. There are, I see some people, the whole idea of shooting a, a documentary tandem video is you have a star and guess who that star is? That's the tandem passenger. And every decision you make should be based around what's going to make this person look good, you know, and make them the hero of the show. And a lot of people are doing a lot of annex and free fall and taken away from the, uh, keeping that tandem passenger as a star. I mean, they're doing some incredible flying, but it's when it's upside down and things like that, it's distracting to them. And to the non-skydiving viewer, it's kind of distracting. I mean, supposing you were a photographer and you were shooting De Niro, say De Niro and uh, uh, Al Pacino in that scene in Heat where they were at the restaurant. Do you remember that scene? Oh, yeah. It was, it was intense. Yeah. What do you one of them would have done if the, the cameraman would have started doing unusual angles <laughs> on them while they were in their intense conversation. Well, they wouldn't be shooting very long. Mm. You know, so it's kind of it's funny because I look back. There were there was a uh, um, one season in particular um, that I worked at uh, Cross Keys where we as the staff had an absolutely amazing time and we made every jump a blast for us. But I've looked back and seen some of the product that we put out back then, and I'm horrified at some of the videos that I shot because clearly the tandem passenger was an afterthought. And 
I I regret that I put that out there and that some guys got to pull up his video, even if me, I'm the tandem instructor, acting the fool on his back instead of doing exactly what you said. Um, and it's it's nice to see the uniformity that's gone on in most places that really do adhere uh, to what you said, which is making that person shine instead of, you know, just being another fun jump for us. Would it surprise you that John Eddowes from the Broskies flew me out there for two seasons to train their, their video people? I mean, I'll tell you what, John may have stirred up a lot of shit in the old days, but he also had some hell of uh, good ideas and brought on some incredible staff. So I, I'm not surprised. Yeah, he was a man of his word, too. We made an um, agreement, and uh, when I got out there, he didn't back up on anything he, he promised to do. And, of course, I didn't either. He said he wanted a cons- – his problem was the group would come and get a video – and there would be three or four different kinds of videos. And people would call in and complain. You know, my video is not like this person or a bad person's. And he wanted uniformity. Sure. And you got to have. Because it's got to be cookie cutter, but it can still be exciting. Believe me, shooting a good tandem is not an easy task. You know, you know I'll, I'll tell you what, man. I used to think that I was a, a really good tandem videographer i really thought that i had some solid skills but i see the real talent that's flying today and i'm absolutely floored by the incredible skills that are being shown in the air on really consistent cookie cutter videos but you can still tell oh my god the talent involved is just beyond yeah there's a group from dubai their their tandem videos I watch them. You know, I watch a lot of different videos because I'm not stuck. And uh, I watch the buys, and they're incredible. Yeah. You know that a lot of uh, tunnel time to help them get their, their videos up to speed in that. And, oh, my gosh, they do a front float, and they're right there all the time. You never see the transition to the belly. They're never more than six foot apart. I mean – Gosh, that's now. So now I've got a couple of my videographers who have seen them, and they're hungry for that. Oh and yeah, tra- now too. Well, you know, you I, know- I I flew in Dubai for ten years, and I would watch those videos playing on the screen. And of course, I watched the progression over that ten years of them getting better and better. And they started out good, but they just kept getting better. And the uh, production quality of the videos is also, beside the flying, the production quality is amazing. But watching firsthand those front floating eggs that you were just talking about with absolutely seamless transitions from every camera flyer, it really, you just kind of walk around going, shit, I used to think I was good, but no. Well, that's how it is, though. I mean, the sport progresses and it improves. And so what you were doing 25 or 30 years ago, for that time, it was good. Sure. but now with the advances they've done and the, and the ability to train people to fly and the wind tunnel and stuff like that, what we did back then wasn't all that hot, but it was the best there was at the time. Absolutely. Well, and and again, I suppose we're all just kind of paving the way for the next generation to pick up the torch and make it a little bit better and keep on going. Yeah. I hope they kind of get away from the GoPros. Um, they, they put out really good image quality but 
people now are becoming camera pointers instead of photographers because everybody's got one on. And so the real photographers are having a hard time making a living because people, this is especially in free flying. In belly flying, I see it's still traditional. But in free flying, they've got all this video that's, quite frankly, less than good. Mm. But it's great because they see their face and, and, and that's the way to go. But they would really, if they would keep doing photography as a photographer, so people like Jason Peters, who is an incredible freefall photographer, head up, head down, whatever you want to call it, you know, he, he, he does it all. And there's some people like that. I got a guy who works for me right now, and he's hungry to make it in this business. And he, he, he does tandem videos for me, and he's doing some of the best tandem videos I got. His name is Joseph Thomas. And he does the head down and, and, and that sort of stuff work really good. But he's not making any money at it. Nobody wants to pay him for his footage or his pictures. Which is a shame. It is a shame. What's going to keep him energized to keep doing this? To get published and to get work, some of it in the military or or whatever. But you got to make a name for yourself. And so that's the the state he's in right now. And he's doing it quite well. I mean, and... and, uh... It's been such a, a weird transition as social media has taken over. I think we just haven't gotten to that next level. Um, and hopefully it's guys like him that are going to push our sport and the the visual side of it to that next level. Now, speaking of, we got somebody listening, say that's just getting started and uh, they know um, that they want to shoot video. Um, how do they... Um, start working towards being able to put in a CV for you. How do they? How do they get to the point where they they can come shoot video for you? Well, I've got a program here at Sky of Arizona. People first get on and they shoot good video on a regular job, where they can keep it framed, they're solid with the exits and things like that. And then I take them on as a trainee. They have to buy their own jump, but they're at a point where they're safe to jump with tandem. And, you know, nothing outranks safety. Mm. Uh, so they'll do them, and I'll coach them along. Every time they do a jump, we, we debrief it, and they have a chance to try to sell it at a reduced price so they can get some of their money back. And often they do. And uh, we debrief it, and we keep building on that, and they keep getting better and better. And then I put on a program called SPECS. And that means they don't have to pay for their jump. They actually get paid $20 to do it. And they go up and they do the spec and then they try to sell a video at regular price, which they're doing quite often. And then after they've done specs and they're really solid, I mean, really solid, mm. then I'll off that and I'll put them in rotation. So it's a, it's a graduating thing. Well, I mean, and, and what better way to do it? I mean, gone are the days like I got started where I got to shoot tandem video because I was the only jackass on the drop zone with a camera helmet. Yeah. You know, I mean, those days are long, long gone. And for good reason. I mean, when I started shooting video, I had absolutely no business flying in front of a tandem. I just happened to spend a lot of time in the Vegas wind tunnel. So I was okay in free fall, but you can't get away with that anymore. No, uh, no. <laughs> Product, the demand for the product has gone much higher the, for the quality. It's gone for much sure. higher. 
and the expectations are much higher. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Mike, it's been absolutely amazing catching up with you again. I know that uh, I think we both thought it was an amazing idea to really touch on uh, being able to help work towards overcoming addiction and such. And I know that's something quite dear to you. Uh, so um, for those people that are thinking, you know, something I I would like to reach out and talk to you, maybe for themselves or maybe for someone else, tell them how they can find you on social media and then uh, um, tell them uh, maybe even uh, th- about the drop zone so they can come talk to you about shooting video. Okay. To get a hold of me, like I said, I have a huge presence on Facebook. It's the only Mike McGowan in Eloy, so I'm easy to find. And all they have to do is IM me, instant message me, and say they want to talk about it. And even if they're not here at the drop zone, we can converse and we can make a lot of headway, make a lot of headway, especially if the person has decided he's had enough. Hit his bottom, you know. And as far as wanting to learn here at uh, Eloy, they just get a hold of me. You got to have 500 jumps before you can do a tandem And if you make that qualification, then you get a hold of me and uh, I'll ask you a few questions because I won't hire a jerk. (laughs) And here's why. I have a great crew. Everybody helps everybody else. We all want everybody to succeed. And one negative Nelly can be a cancer that can ruin the whole thing. I can teach people how to shoot video. I've done it continuously. But I can't teach an asshole not to be an asshole. <laughs> I can't. I can't think of a better way to wrap things up. You can teach someone to shoot video, but you can't tell them teach an asshole how not to be an asshole. Mike, man, again, thank you so much. I'm gonna want to keep catching up with you because I know I've not even tapped into a tenth of the wealth of knowledge that you've got to share with the community. But please, big hugs all around to everybody at Skydive Arizona. And again, big thanks to you for coming on. My pleasure. Take care. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually, brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the Extreme Sports Collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, check out summitparachutesystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs rigging courses, and more by Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. Go to flyawaytn.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to purespectrumcbd.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the lunaticfringepodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Damn. <laughs>